You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. All right. I am Michelle Camayo. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton. I work with employers on a daily basis. We have these practical discussions where I am not giving legal advice. It's more having these practical discussions about your business objectives versus any risk that you may have when you run a benefits program, for example. And that risk, of course, is represented by the myriad of different laws and regulations that employers have to follow. This is the time of year where there are uh, a lot of moving parts. Not only is, uh, is the majority of employers going through open enrollment, but we have a lot of legal movement as well. And we have uh, potentially emerging ordinances. We have a spending bill that might come up or should, hopefully, by December 16th. So please be diligent in your updates. So that, that's my cautionary statement is to be diligent in your updates. So really the goal today is to help you as the employer address or solve your compliance concerns and issues. So Ask Michelle was created to answer your questions that are most meaningful to you as the audience member. So what I'll do is I have this new half hour format that we started in the summer. I have some brief updates for you. And always remember that you can submit your questions in advance, and the email address is on the screen there. And you can also listen to these episodes via Apple Podcasts that drop every Tuesday after the monthly talk. Okay, so let's get into some compliance chatter. What have I heard about? It might be helpful for you to know what what are employers asking me, what what's out there right now that's creating some buzz. And the first thing that we'll talk about are the transparency efforts. Now, the federal transparency efforts are comprised of the CAA Act and the Transparency and uh, Coverage, which is a Medicare or HHS rule. So it's really two different pieces of legislation that are trying to bring forth transparency in the medical coverage marketplace. And you've probably been paying attention because we heard a lot around July about these machine-readable files that needed to be posted with all of this data on it that really could only be read by a machine. Uh, and then we are now talking about um, health cost transparency efforts with regards to prescription drug cost reporting. We call it Section 204RX for prescription, DC for data cost reporting or data collection, excuse me. Uh, and really for self-insured medical plan sponsors, that's where the action needs to be taken. If you have a self-insured medical plan and you're not sure how your TPA and your PBM are filing this data on your behalf, now is absolutely the time to connect with them, ask them what they're doing and what you might need to be doing as well. And that's with regards to self-insured medical plans. 
If you have a fully insured medical plan, you have much less control and you have much less data at your fingertips. So the carrier has to comply on your part. Now, the carrier might need your help in complying. They may need some information from you, um, but for the most part, the carrier is the one who's going to submit those data files to CMS. So fully insured plans do get a reprieve there because there's really very little that you can do. It's your carrier who's going to do the heavy lifting on your part. And at the top here, we have the price comparison tool is coming for plan years beginning on or after January 1. So if you're like many employers, you're renewing January 1, you, your group health plan should have a price comparison tool up and running on January 1. If you're fully insured, as we just talked about, you're not going to be the one to have to create this tool. That is something your carrier is working on and should be rolling out January 1 for those plans that renew on January 1. And if you are self-insured, you want to check in with your TPA, ask them how they will be assisting and to ensure that the members have this price comparison tool on hand starting uh, in the plan year beginning on or after January 1. And the price comparison tool, uh, we're hearing it called the health cost estimator. And the reason why is because the intent of this tool is to have the member go online and estimate their cost share based on their plan design of certain services. In fact, it's 500 shoppable services that must be loaded into that tool for plan years beginning on or after January 1. So it should be a really great thing for your medical plan participants when it's rolled out and you get that communication or maybe even for dur during open enrollment for plans that renew next year, it would be a good idea to advertise that because I think we all would love to have some, uh, have a tool that we could estimate our cost. That's kind of a cool thing. And then we've had, oh, we just put out a blog and a compliance alert here at Bolton regarding the HSA no-cost or low-cost telehealth release that's expiring January 1 of 2023. This is especially important for employers that purchase Teladoc separately. So Teladoc is a form of telehealth coverage. I think it's probably the number one branded uh, telehealth coverage out there that an employer could purchase. So it's Teladoc. It's just telehealth coverage. If you purchase that as standalone for your participants, uh, or if you have a self-funded plan and you offer HSA plans, then that would be especially important that you understand, you know, what does it mean that the telehealth relief is expiring and what does my group health plan have to do? And we did publish a blog. You can find that on boltoncode.com slash blog for the details there. And of course, California's new pay transparency law. I hosted a webinar at the end, or I think it was the middle of November. Hopefully that gave uh, our audience a lot of data. And then we had another Bolton-sponsored webinar earlier this week. It was just a 30-minute webinar on seven action steps. That was on the pay transparency law as well. The, the hard truth, I think, is that we're still waiting on guidance. There's still questions being asked, and 
the regulations don't have clear answers. So what we're doing is we're just talking to practitioners. We're talking to those legal employment law attorneys, and we're asking them, okay, what should an employer do in this instance? And they are um, giving their best guidance, and, and generally it's going to be conservative until we have more clarifying facts from the DLSE with regards to some of these nuanced pay transparency questions. And for 2023, we're getting at the time of year where a lot of attorneys are putting on their end of year legislative updates. We're kind of looking into what's going to, what's going to happen in 2023 with regards to group benefits. The end of the public health emergency, so PHE, it seems very likely. And it, I, I'm a little bit surprised that it, uh, we didn't get a notice from HHS with a 60-day advance notice to let us know that PHE was ending. So what we know right now is we fully expect that the PHE will continue and be renewed again in mid-January. So the public health emergency is still exists, as I believe most of you know. It was renewed, and the renewal lasts until mid-January, and then it needs to be renewed again. And HHS has committed to giving everyone 60 days notice when they plan on you know, uh, not renewing the PHE, which is a good thing. And we didn't get that notice in mid-November, like some of us thought we would. And so what that really means in effect is that we fully expect the PHE to continue after mid-January. It will be a 90-day renewal period, and then we'll see what happens after that 90 days. So it's really interesting because a lot of the COVID relief depends and really points to the end of the public health emergency. So the end of the public health emergency will have a good amount of impact on group benefits. We do expect that to be in 2023. We just don't know yet what quarter that will fall in. Having a lot of buzz around CPRA, the California Privacy Rights Act, which it really, some of us know it as CCPA. That's what was passed in 2018. But then it was amended in 2020 by the California Privacy Rights Act, which is CPRA. And now going forward, starting in 2023, we're really all going to come to know it as CPRA. So they are one and the same, the same pieces of legislation, just CPRA is the most, um, the most recent version of it. So I hope that's on your radar if it applies to your organization. And the last thing I'm hearing from uh, several people or employers is about the Biden administration. It's, it's news the past couple of weeks. They need more money, right, to purchase vaccines. They've been heavily subsidizing uh, if not completely subsidizing vaccines and testing. And if they don't get that money, and, and if we do, we're going to know by December 16th, hopefully, for the budget spending bill, then if that money doesn't uh, come to fruition through that spending bill, costs will shift to the commercial market. And so what that means is that there's going to be uncertainty with regards to the cost shifting and the access. So right now, where the government is purchasing vaccines around $20 per vaccine, if it shifts to the commercial market, group health plans will have to pay 
you know, three, four times more than what the federal government is paying, which means there's going to be some cost shifting there. We don't know what that's going to look like as far as premiums, and we don't know whether or not Congress will give the Biden administration the money they're asking for to continue to subsidize the vaccines and the testing. Just something to keep on your radar. It's been hitting a lot of news lines lately. I have a quick question here. I'm going to address this before we move on. EEOC had been voluntary. Is it now a requirement? Is this the, uh, is this with regards to paid data reporting? I need some more clarity on that one to answer that one. So we will move on. All right. So that's what I'm hearing. And every time we meet and we talk, I really like to bring something that I see out in the marketplace that I find of interest that's with, with regards to, you know, group benefits or what may be out there. And uh, we came across a survey. It was sponsored by IMA, the Bolton IMA, and it shows uh, some benchmarking. So, for example, for family-friendly bene family benefits survey is what we have here. So we've got a list of all this paid leave that one could offer or what we see out there that employers are offering. And then we're, it's showing based off of a survey, a survey showing how many corporations participate or offer and how many public employers offer. So I think a few of these are, are, are interesting. Definitely nice to know where your organization lines up if you're interested in that sort of thing. So paid adoption leave, the highest uptake, you know, almost 27% of corporations and public employers offer paid adoption leave. And they look like a quarter offer unpaid. Not much difference between corporations and public employers there. And we have paid pet paternity, only 0.8% of corporations. I think that might be a, a growing area. There, but right now, no public employers offer that, and then 0.8% of corporations. So very small amount. And then paid volunteer leave. There's a big discrepancy between public employers and corporations. So corporations, 35.4% of corporations offering paid volunteer leave, 133 of public. And then you can go down there, the list here in case you're interested in seeing what other employers are doing out there. The other one I see here is financial assistance for adoption. Almost 17% for corporations are offering that and 6.7 for public employers. Okay, before I go into the questions that were submitted in, a, in advance, I have a, a couple of questions here. For the new pay transparency law, are companies required to share every job with employees or just the job the employee is in? So this question is, I believe the missing detail here is, are they required to share the salary range with employees for every job when requested or just the job the employee is in? It is just the job position that the employee is in. So I'm sure you all have heard that employees can request to see the pay scale range for their position. So yes, just their position. Good question. And another question on job postings. Are we posting the rate we are willing to pay or must it be the full range of current employee salaries? You know, that's, that's a, 
not a, an entirely clear question, but it's really what you reasonably expect to pay. Those words are right in the regulations, what you reasonably expect to pay. So if we use that term based on the guidance we have or the words we have to go by, what you reasonably expect to pay may not be the full range of your current employee's salary. You know, it's what it's based on that moment in time and that position you're hiring in in that moment of time. And what you pay a current employee may have a little bearing on what you're willing to pay at that moment in time. So, no, I definitely don't. I can say with confidence that there's nothing saying you have to post, you know, base it off your current employee salaries. So it's really what you reasonably expect to pay. Under, I have another question we'll take here. Under pay transparency ranges, what is, what if our ranges are below competitive markets? Are there any issues with that? And um, you explained that you're nonprofit, state funded. Yes, whole, completely understand. We work with so many nonprofits that rely on those state funds. So understand your question. Uh, if you're below the competitive market, that it has no relevance to this law. Um, it's, it doesn't matter if you're below or above. The law is not stating, is not telling you where you have to be as far as what the salaries need to be. The law is only requiring employers to be transparent or certain employers, I should say, to be transparent. So uh, if, if that's the case, if you're below the market, um, that it's going to have no bearing on your compliance with the the uh, the law. And someone asked, what if you post the range and end up offering a higher range? And I think what I think what you mean by offering a higher range, you're just saying offering a higher salary. Is that what you mean? So if you post the range, let's say the range is between 40 and 55, but you end up uh, sending an offer letter out for 58,000 which is above what you posted, that, again, that is okay. There is nothing in the law that stops you from paying someone more than the range that you listed. You know, as long as you are using a range that you reasonably expect to pay, then you are fine. It, you, it does not, that range does not point to what you have to pay. It's simply a, a range that you reasonably expect to pay. Some of our positions, this person is posing a question, some of our positions had steps and their ranges will be the first and last step, but they will advance to the following step based on number of months and units. Is that okay? Yeah, I mean, the practice itself is okay. And, and, and maybe your question is, well, how do we, how do we list it on a job posting? Uh, and I really think that if everyone stops, at the, if everyone is hired at the first step and then you would post the salary range, you would expect to reasonably expect to pay for someone who you're hiring in that first step. And I have a question. Should we post the ranges on 1231 so that they are available for 1123? I think you should. I definitely do here. Uh, there's nothing that, that says you have to. But, you know, I think it's nice to be prepared to put it out there. We were we were hearing from practitioners that they were saying, you know, maybe you start doing it right now because you can work out some of the kinks, if you will, 
if you started posting it earlier rather than on the deadline. So yes, you. I think it makes sense to post as, as early as you can because you can work out some of the kinks and you can be absolutely ready on January 1, 2023. But I also think it's okay to wait uh, until January 1, 2023. Uh, changing topics here, we have a question about a premium-only plan. I love these questions. Our company offers a premium-only plan. Do we need to have employees fill out a new POP agreement at open enrollment each year or just once? That is a great question. So we're just going to, because we're talking about a different topic, I'll set this up. A premium-only plan is a Section 125 plan. It's what I would call a subset of a Section 125. In the Section 125 rules issued by the IRS, employers can offer a premium-only plan, which is simply the ability to take a pre-tax deduction from an employee's paycheck for premiums related to group health, which is medical, dental, and vision, uh, and then could even be HSA contributions. So do we need to have employees fill out a new POP agreement each year? Uh, no, and I think this is an area where as a, it's an interesting question. I'd like to know what you're currently doing. Um, do you use a BIN admin system? Because if you use a benefit admin system and the employee enrolls electronically, that language can just be built in there. And when the employee hits submit or confirm their elections, they're also agreeing to a pre-tax deduction. Um, so I, th I think in general, my answer is no, you don't need a new POP agreement each year as long as you have a Section 125 plan document and it's clear to the employees that you are taking a pre-tax deduction. And, oh, this is a great question. Thank you for submitting this one. With regards to pay transparency, um, we said, all right, you know, I gave the example, if you have a range and it's 40 to 55 and you hire at 58, then the question is, if you, if you pay the higher salary, if you go outside of the range you gave, so let's say you pay someone 58, but your range was only up to 55, does that range increase the next time to include that new rate? And I don't think the answer is yes, it absolutely has to, because the, the answer to your question is going to depend on what do you reasonably expect to pay when you put up that job posting. So if you pay someone 58000 because they had all the qualifications and everything you were looking for, so you wanted to offer them more, that doesn't mean that you're now reasonably expecting to pay everyone up to 58000 just because you hired one. So I, I, I think that's more of a um, a question of, you know, at the time you're listing the job posting, what do you reasonably expect to pay? And if that if you pay someone higher and that sets a new ceiling for your organization, then yes, you know, you would increase that salary range. But if it didn't and it was a one-time exception, then then you wouldn't. I have a question about L.A. City minimum wage. I do not know the answer here, but I might have a resource for you later, so stay tuned in, in some of my slides. All right, that's all the questions now that were submitted. Thank you. I really appreciate the questions. So I'm going to go to some of the questions that were submitted to in advance. We have an employer who started the process to test their flexible spending account plan for non-discrimination. And if it is that time of year, you want to test uh, really on the last day of the planned year or before the last day of the planned year. And it is required by our IRS regulations, by the way. 
And the person said that we're testing our FSA and the rep for our FSA vendor told us that we have to include all the premiums under our Section 125 plan, not just the FSA contributions. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. If you offer a Section 125 that includes an FSA and you're taking pre-tax deductions, so you have a POP for medical, dental, and vision, you have to test every single one of those pre-tax contributions or pre-tax uh, premiums, the employer and the employee cost share. If you just test the FSA portion without the POP portion, your test isn't accurate and it's really null and void. So please be sure that when you are testing your FSA plan for non-discrimination, what you're really testing is the entire Section 125, which includes premium-only plans as well. Um, said that, and I've got a, a poll for you because this is an area that I get a lot of questions on non-discrimination testing and rules and all of those fun regulations. So I have a question for the audience. Do you test your Section 125 plan each year? So you have yes or no, if you could vote here, or I didn't know it was necessary, and that's okay too. Non-discrimination rules are highly complex. Section 125 rules, Section 105 rules, those are highly complex and they're often misunderstood. So we have, do you test your plan each year? Yes, no, or I didn't know. Looks like we're having almost half didn't know it was necessary, which was not surprised by your response at all. That's a very common response. Then we have a little bit less than half that say, yes, we do test. That's Awesome, glad to hear it. And then no, uh, about 12% of the audience. So thank you for voting. Um, it is necessary to test your Section 125 plan per IRS regulations. You must test it. It doesn't speak to frequency, but in practical matters, you need to test every single year. And you'll get a pass or fail result. And if you get a fail, you would need to take corrections to bring it into a passing result. All right, our next question that was submitted, someone attended a webinar, I think it was actually yesterday or the day before, on the new RX prescription drug reporting. And they had a question. They said, do I need to register on the CMS website? And do I need a written agreement on file with my carrier stating they will take responsibility for this prescription drug reporting? And the answer is, um, I would say different depending on if you're fully insured or self-insured. Fully insured medical plans must rely on their carriers, which we talked about in that first slide. So be diligent in your carrier communications as they might require some action on your part. Uh, in fact, Kaiser just sent an email to their clients, which you may have gotten, and the email is with regards to a letter of agreement. And the letter of agreement is Kaiser extending a courtesy to all of their clients saying, look, we're going to take responsibility for X, Y, and Z, which is generally the transparency efforts that are out there. And you'll see it written out in that letter. And Kaiser said, if you want to, them to execute that letter of agreement, you can download it, sign it yourself, and then send it to them they will sign it and then you'll keep that letter of agreement in your file. I do think it's, a, 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 it's worthwhile to go through those steps to get that formal 
letter of agreement on file with Kaiser. So Kaiser's the only one right now that I know of that is doing this. And it is a good thing. It's really great courtesy. But do I think it's necessary that you have a formal letter of agreement with all carriers if you're fully insured? I do not. An email could be considered written agreement. So if you have an email where the, uh, your Anthem rep said, yes, we're taking care of this for you, you can save that email, put it in your files, and be done. And for Bolton clients, if we get that email here as your broker, we save it in our files, and then we feel um, ensured that your carrier is doing what they need to do and that you have that written agreement. So fully insured medical plans, there is no action needed unless your carrier reaches out to you and says, hey, I need your help. You need to answer these three questions so I can submit this on your behalf. So there's no action needed until you hear uh, from your carrier otherwise. But you do want to be diligent in your carrier communication. So if you're a Kaiser client and you're listening on the line and your employer has Kaiser, you should have received an email from Kaiser. And they sent it directly to employers. They did not send it to the brokers first, which I think they should have because we could help you if they had, um, but they sent it to clients first, or their, their employers first. If you're on the line and you have a self-insured medical plan, you need to coordinate with your TPA and PBM because action will be necessary. I can tell you here, we have several self-funded medical plans here that we work with, and their TPAs and their PBMs have been hard at work coordinating all of the efforts so that they can help their self-insured medical plan clients submit these files to CMS, and some of them are submitting them on behalf. Uh, so there, there's a lot going on if you have a self-insured medical plan. So be, be sure that you're reaching out to coordinate with your TPA and your PBM. I had a question regarding Section 125, so we'll go back to that. When should companies, uh, I think the question is probably, when should companies have a Section 125? December, January, and is there a recommendation? Well, if, you have, if you're taking a pre-tax pre -tax deduction for medical, dental, or vision, or you know, any of your group benefits, then you absolutely need a Section 125 and you need uh, what's called the premium-only plan, the POP. If you have an FSA, then you already have a, uh, should have a Section 125 document as well. And so if the question is, when should I implement one, when's a good time to start one for the first time, that's really up to the organization. I know a lot of organizations will align their FSAs with their renewals. So if you go through open enrollment in December for January 1, you'd want to align your FSA with that as well. And if you're implementing a Section 125 for the very, very first time, including a POP, then um, if I were the employee, I would want you to do it as soon as possible. And the employer saves money, too, on taxes with a POP. So I would say no reason to wait. Go ahead and implement a POP at any point in time. Next question here, which employers are subject to CCPA as amended by CPRA? I added this here just so you have a point of reference. If you're on the line and you're unaware of whether or not your organization needs to comply, and perhaps it's not your, uh, within your job function, which 
maybe consider yourself lucky, I think. Um, but I wanted to make sure that you all had a definition of which employers are subject to this because there is a deadline of January 1. I took this. This is copy and pasted from the Fisher Phillips fact section of their CCPA Resource Center. So Fisher Phillips has a CCPA Resource Center. It's really cool. Has a bunch of facts on it and some more details on which employers are subject to this. Or, or encourage you to reach out to them. I had another great question earlier this week where an employee and a child tested positive for COVID at the same time. And the question from the employer was, does the employee get 40 hours or 80 hours of California supplemental paid sick leave? Couldn't figure it out. Is it 40 or is it 80? So I reached out to one of my favorite employment law attorneys um, she really said, look, there could be overlapping reasons for the leave, so it might just be best to let the employee take however much time they have available to minimize any risk down the road. Otherwise, if you're not comfortable with just letting them have the full 80 hours if they and the child tested positive at the same time, Otherwise, if you're not comfortable with, with um, that advice to go ahead and just pay out whatever's left if they're requesting it, we encourage employers really seek guidance from your employment law counsel so that you can get comfortable with whichever path you take. We have some resources for you. As always, the Bolton blog, so the telehealth relief for HSAs, if you wanted to read more on that, that's on the Bolton blog, Paid Leave Oregon, Colorado paid family leave, that's all there on the Bolton blog. You can search for those topics as well. If you have benefit-related questions, feel free to contact your Bolton client team if we're your broker. Also for Bolton clients, Mineral uh, is a great resource, and Mineral has some really cool features that I have on the next slide. And I've also linked the Fisher Phillips CCPA Resource Center. And Fisher Phillips also offers the following, which is um, a menu of flat fee starter kits and templates and packets for the CCPA compliance. I think that's really great that you don't have to fully engage them. You could just pay them a, a flat fee and get access to their starter kit and their templates. So if you're interested in um, flat fee starter kits or templates or packets for CCPA, let me know and I can put you directly in touch with Fisher Phillips. And for clients that have Mineral, if you're a Bolton client, you automatically have Mineral and you should have a login available. Uh, Mineral came out with some new um, tools that I thought were cool and I wanted to share with you. First is an interactive minimum wage map. So someone asked about minimum wage for LA City today on on the webinar, I don't know the answer, but perhaps you can go to Mineral, find that minimum wage map, and you can find it there. Or you could ask your Mineral rep. You can submit a question to them right there online. Mineral also has dynamic calculators, uh, calculate the cost for hire, employee turnover, absenteeism, and then even ACA full-time equivalent, you could, and the ACA Safe Harbor uh, calculator. You can export a report of relevant laws. So they, they have a function where you have a shareable report of laws that apply to your business. Expanded state level content, that's good. There's so, so much coming out 
for, for each state making your job harder because now you need to know all the different paid leave laws and pay data transparency or pay scale transparency laws in each state that's, that's passing this legislation. So hopefully that helps. And I have a question about pay data reporting or transparency. So someone asked, um, the reporting requirements for the pay transparency, is there something additional to the pay equity reporting requirements? Um, I'm not sure what exactly you mean. The new law, uh, 1162, is pay data reporting for certain employers and then pay scale transparency. Uh, so job posting transparency is another. Those are the two very big topics that came out of that one. And the webinar we did last uh, in November is a great one. If you want to download that episode from Apple Podcasts, the November episode, it, it can answer all of your, I think, a lot of your questions there. So I hope that helped. All right. Well, that is it. Don't forget, you can submit your questions in advance for January's webinar at askmichelle at com. Thanks for your time today. Bye, everyone.